But while uh, marriage is a thread that runs through all three sections, uh, this isn't only about marriage. Uh, None of what Jesus says in all of this is ever as narrow as that. Uh, this, uh, Jesus teaches about uh, examining the motives and the state of your heart, not just looking at your actions. He talks about the importance of cutting sin off at its root, at its cause. Uh, he talks about uh, the validity of judgment as a consequence of sin. And he talks about the very basic virtue of being a man or a woman of your word. Uh, not only when it comes to making public promises in marriage, but just in daily life to say only what you mean and to do what you say. So, uh, but as I say, we, we are going to look at this mostly in terms of marriage because it is a thread that runs through it. But let me put things just in perspective slightly before we go any further. Because I do suggest to you, and maybe you feel the same way, that adultery and divorce are pretty bleak measures by which to look at marriage. It's sort of a bare minimum metric. So patting yourself on the back for being a good husband or wife because you've never cheated and you've never been divorced is kind of like saying, I know I'm a good person because I've never been to jail. The Bible has much more things to say about marriage than simply don't play up, don't divorce. The Bible says love your wife. Respect your husband, enjoy frequent sex with each other, carry each other's burdens, raise a family and teach your children. And done right, doesn't this have all the ingredients for a pretty fulfilling and joyful life? A full life shared with your best friend by your side until the day you die? And so putting adultery and divorce in proper perspective, when Jesus affirms that we should avoid catastrophic failure... Well, we are dealing in the bare minimum areas of, you know, just just crossing the threshold. But while I'm not here to high-five every man who's never cheated on his wife or to put on a pedestal every unhealthy marriage that so far resisted the ultimate failure, let's look at this thing with proper perspective and acknowledge that actually accumulating years together, even if they're hard... That is a very cool accomplishment and it honours the Lord. We are right to recognise milestones and honour couples that make it to 10, 20, 50, 60 years. Even those long marriages that have made it more through grit than by skipping merrily every step of the way, there's something good and beautiful and uh, honourable about that. Survival even by the skin of your teeth, is preferable to death. Sustaining a marriage at a bare minimum state of health is preferable to divorce. So there's some perspective. Not not committing adultery isn't the goal. Having a good, healthy marriage is the goal. Uh, But... Uh, Let's look at the sections in order here. We'll use the headings that have been inserted into my ESV Bible. We're going to look at them paragraph by paragraph. Lust, divorce and oaths. First, lust. And I will say I'm back to my pattern of speaking more on the first one, less on the second and not very much on the third. Lust. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says, that you shall not commit adultery. 
Or Jesus is the one who says, you know, I came to fulfill the law. He affirms this existing law. You shall not commit adultery. Don't do it. Do not, under any circumstances, engage in sexual activity with a person who isn't your own spouse. Come on, you know this. You've got it. Don't do it. And everybody knows this. And if you have committed adultery, or if you do in the future go there, then your marriage is in grave danger. But it's not all about uh, the immediate consequences. If you, if you cross that line, the fear isn't only about you know, what might happen to your marriage now. Some things can be kept secret, just not from God in heaven. Every dark deed will be uncovered, if not in this life, then in the life to come. And even the secret sins that are kept perfectly secret from others have a pretty special way of eating up a conscience. And if they don't eat up your conscience, then that's its own problem because you've got a pretty hard and hard if you feel like you can justify a thing like that and keep it secret. So I will say, uh, because in some ways there's something very special about a church family, a bunch of people who have been called by God to love, uh, to, to know his love and to live in love... But, I, but even in these families, there are people who cross terrible boundaries. And so if you have committed adultery, or if you do in the future, you cannot undo what you've done, but you need to make it right as much as possible. Whoever you're cheating with, leave them in the cold. You owe them nothing. You shouldn't have done it, but you owe them nothing. You belong to your husband or your wife and return there and be faithful from this point on and confess your sin. At the very least, bare minimum, confess it to God. Speak to him honestly about your heart and what you've done. Preferably also speak of your sin to a trusted Christian ally, maybe a leader in the church, and probably to your marriage partner as well. And where are the consequences? Because you've done a terrible thing. But Jesus says this in verse 28. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Remember, Jesus is not denying the adultery laws. He's not even really amplifying the law at this point. He is integrating it with God's desire for full heart, soul and mind obedience. Uh, If you love your neighbour, if you love your wife then you're not even going to step out in your imagination to her. A few things. It says there, whoever whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent. And now, by the way, I'm assuming that Jesus is is speaking in the masculine, but he's talking to everyone. So whoever looks at a man or woman with lustful intent. But what is lustful intent? This is not the same as feeling yourself accidentally attracted uh, to a person or appreciating beauty as it passes across your vision. Though I do say that somewhat reluctantly because people can twist themselves into all sorts of knots to justify what their conscience actually tells them is wrong. Or I'm not gawking, I'm just appreciating, you know? You know. But I think it's a helpful distinction uh, for in a number of scenarios because Christian men and women... Uh, who choose to follow God's design and save sex for uh, marriage, well, they will invariably find themselves in a no-man's land leading up to marriage 
where they are physically and sexually drawn to each other, but they're not yet married and they choose to not indulge those desires. But those desires are still there. So are you lusting after your future wife when you're drawn to the person that, let's face it, part of you wants to marry her because you find her attractive? Well, this dance of attraction and resistance and mutual submission to God's will and delayed gratification, it is all a part of it. It is a part of obedience to God. It is not sinful to sexually desire the man or woman that you expect or hope to marry. But it does you no harm to wait. It may even do you good to wait uh, and to strengthen your faith and your will to resist. So I don't think lustful intent is merely attraction or being attracted to a person, um, even sexually. Uh, But what is this intent? Well, it is, I suspect, the lustful intent to commit adultery. So it's not even just about looking at a person, it's about the intent of the heart. So looking with lustful intent is, for example, drinking in the view of a person that you're not married to but you would cheat with if you had the chance. That's intent. It's flirting when you're already spoken for. And people play with these lines, actually, all the time. You've probably seen it in your workplace. It's suggestive and inappropriate remarks. So sometimes people aren't even... Sometimes people with the intent to commit adultery don't even have a particular person in mind. They just go fishing. You know, um, uh, dropping hints, peppering, uh, uh, preppering inappropriate remarks and compliments to every bit of skirt that walks past, just hoping that maybe they'll nibble and if they don't, you can say, oh, I was only joking. That's intent. Lustful intent is privately seeking out friendship and entrusting secrets with a man or woman who is not your husband or wife. Almost anything that raises the stakes in terms of intimacy, and it might be emotional at first, almost anything that puts you or the other person in a vulnerable position where, uh, where an inappropriate relationship may develop, well, that would be lustful intent. It's certainly dangerous territory. Or maybe you're thinking something like this. Maybe you're thinking, phew, lustful intent is only the intent to actually commit adultery, Well, I have no intention to commit adultery. I'm just a normal man or woman who likes what I see. I can look but not touch, but there's no intent in that. Well, I do think that lustful intent runs deeper still. It's not merely the intent to commit adultery, it's the intent to lust. Because sometimes lust is in itself its own reward, its own intoxicating feeling to just fuel some fantasy with desire for a bit. So... It's intent, lustful intent is the intent to lust. So perhaps with no intent to commit adultery, but nevertheless you look at a man or woman just because the attraction feels good. Uh, lustful intent is looking twice or stealing glances. Now if you're looking, uh, if you're checking to see if anyone's looking at you before you look, that's probably a pretty good indication that you're doing something on the sly. Intent to lust is indulging in fantasy. Uh, So maybe it's looking, but maybe it's reading stories or articles. Maybe it's fantasising about another person. And maybe it's not just dreaming about their body and their form, but it's about how this person makes you laugh, how this person understands me like nobody else. Uh, Maybe it's their relationship with their mother that makes you just, oh, go weak at the knees. 
or the lifestyle that that person's money could provide you. And fill in your head with these thoughts when that person does not belong to you. Lustful intent is not merely looking twice at the people who cross your path, it's seeking out opportunities to gaze on people you're not entitled to. So at the day at the beach might sound like fun, but if you're going to the beach and while you're heading there, you're also thinking, I wonder who I'll see. I wonder, uh, uh, you know, I hope uh, it's a sunny day. I hope people aren't wearing too much. Well, that's a pretty good indication of where your heart is. Searching out pornography, as commonplace and accepted as it might be in your workplace and among your friends, uh, that is lustful intent. Choosing your movies or viewing based on their rating because the sex scenes or nudity are promised within, that would be lustful intent. Some movies downgrade their content to sneak under age restrictions. Other movies cram as much content in to get over certain age restrictions because they want to entice people in who are looking for that stuff. Now notice one more really powerful thing in this short verse. Uh, Particularly notice the shift from present tense to past tense. So it says, everyone who looks, that's present tense, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So it's not the act, it's not even the looking, maybe it's not even uh, the fantasy and the imagination, it's a, there's a root in the person's heart. You may remember Jesus opened this sermon with a series of blessings that are called the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. In verse 20, Jesus said, uh, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said this because he discerned that many of the Pharisees and the scribes uh, who had intricate knowledge of all the technicalities of the law and they were widely revered and honoured for their strict obedience to the law, Jesus discerned looking at them that many of them were more concerned with looking like they were obeying or technically obeying rather than obeying from the heart. What God has always required is our hearts. It's not that in the Old Testament God required obedience and now he wants your heart. God has always wanted the heart and the love of all his people. That greatest command is in the Old and the New Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. There are times in the Old Testament where the prophets are speaking to the people saying, okay, you're doing all the things, all the religious stuff, you're burning all the things in the right place and you're, uh, and you're saying all the right words, but your hearts are far from me. And that's when, Je- when the Lord starts saying things like, I hate the sacrifices that you bring. Those sacrifices mean nothing if they come with a corrupt heart. So Jesus says that the thing that makes a man or woman guilty uh, isn't the final or eventual act of literal adultery, or even the fantasizing or the flirting that, flirting that leads up to it, but that everyone who actually commits adultery and many who never cross that line are adulterers at heart. Maybe you know the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, they were Adam and Eve's first sons. Genesis chapter 4, it says that Cain grew jealous of Abel and he killed him, his brother. But before Cain killed Abel... God had spoken to Cain and God said to him, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, 
but you must master it. And he didn't. Well, it's worth looking at yourself and seeing inside the sin that is crouching at the door, desiring to master you. Look inside and find the weak cheater that, given the right circumstances, may actually take that chance. Look inside and find alongside that person also the murderer, the liar and the thief. It's time, friends, to be poor in spirit, as Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's be humble and ask for God's grace and repentance. Ask for him to change our hearts, give us hearts uh, that want what is right. And let's not think too highly of ourselves, because sin is crouching at the door. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then likewise, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Historically, a very small number of people have applied this literally. Nearly everyone accepts that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. Mostly I agree, except for this. Verse 29, it would be better to be one-eyed than to be thrown into the tip outside the city and set on fire, wouldn't it? Literally, it would. It would be better to have a left hand and a right stump than to be killed and dumped or to face God's eternal judgment. Literally, better by far. There's no exaggeration there except that you can still perv with one eye or with no eyes you can fantasise. You can still steal and cross boundaries with one hand or no hands. Even the paralytic was told by Jesus, your sins are forgiven and I often wonder what sins he could have forgiven. But we've all got this and we've all got this. There's no exaggeration here. Better by far to be restrained and pure than to follow your heart and be judged alongside the devil and his angels. I wonder if Jesus is remembering Adam and Eve in the garden. You might remember they were given every tree and every fruit. God said, just don't eat from this one. And when the serpent said to Eve, God is holding out, God doesn't want your best, it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. Literally, she lusted it with her eyes. And the tree was desired to make one wise and so she took it with her hand, the fruit, and she ate it and then gives to her husband who follows suit. Well, it would have been better to gouge the eyes that gazed at the fruit than to lust after it. It would have been better to sever the hand that took it than to unleash sin and death and hell on all humanity. But if only drastic drastic measures had been taken, then disaster might have been averted. If only, not only drastic measures, if only for some very basic self-restraint at times. But let it be a cautionary tale for you as well. Build walls around areas of temptation. Seek accountability for your struggles with sin. Avoid the shows or websites or scenarios that entice you. Maybe even withdraw from certain friendship groups for a time if they have an only negative influence on you. Do it not because you must, but because you love the Lord.
because you trust him and take him at his word. Divorce. There is so much to say about this and I'm not going to say barely a fraction of it. But Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 24 where Moses talks about uh, the already existing scenario of divorce where a man would give his wife a certificate to confirm the marriage was truly over. And as with the rest of the scriptures, Jesus actually affirms it. If you divorce, make it official, make it final, don't leave a person hanging, don't, uh, don't, use, um, don't use not divorcing as a weapon against someone that you've already abandoned. Jesus does take a very firm view of marriage and divorce, as we'll see. And some Christians have taken his words to mean that the only legitimate divorces are the ones where one person has committed adultery and then taken that a step further to say, therefore, other divorced people may be divorced in their own eyes or even the eyes of the state, but they're not really divorced in God's eyes and they're still bound by their original vows and therefore, if they're remarried, they're adulterers continuing in sin. I strongly disagree. Jesus does not repeal the Old Testament understanding of divorce. Jesus acknowledges divorce where it's occurred. He did not come to abolish the law... So whatever was still stands, divorce tragically but truly dissolves the marriage obligation. But let's see what Jesus does go on to say. He says, everyone, uh, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, that might seem to undo what I just said. Uh, since Jesus seems to suggest that marriage obligations are still in place and that starting a new relationship introduces adultery. What I am trying to do is to integrate other teachings from Scripture into this that would seem to contradict it unless we're understanding this, uh, in, in case, unless the face value understanding of this actually needs a little bit more fleshing out. I've done a lot of reading on marriage and divorce and remarriage. I'd love to work with you to untangle this issue uh, if you are left confused uh, or hurt or upset by anything that gets said here. Uh, But I think the most obvious way to read the context of most of the Bible's comments on divorce is that the person doing the divorcing is the aggressor, normally speaking, in in the scriptural context. When he's saying don't divorce, he's saying don't use divorce against a person, don't abandon a person. But in the context of when a person is abandoned and divorced, he's saying you are truly divorced and you are free to go. There is one person in these contexts, it seems, there is one person, usually the man, wanting to vo- want, waving divorce in the other person's face as a threat and sometimes using it as a get-out-of-jail card and a justification for their own adultery. So there were men who only ever technically slept with their wife. It's just that they used divorce to sanctify their promiscuity. So they would divorce their wife and marry a new one and sleep with her and divorce her and marry a new one and sleep with her. It's technically not adultery. Jesus isn't interested. It's not right. It's obviously not right. It's technically right. It's obviously not right. Get real. And so I think in verse 32, up here, Jesus is saying something like this. To you men who think it's okay to discard a good wife who has only ever been faithful, look at the ripple effects of your actions. This woman is now the victim of your adultery. 
And although she's never broken her vow to you, if she's to find support in another man's home, she is now taking the baggage of your misbehaviour into a new relationship. Something like that. That's how I understand it. Some of you will understand it very differently and we can have that conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, as I say, I appreciate the most obvious reading of the words on the page don't quite go that way. Uh, some people have read this to say that after divorce you should remain single. Some people have even wondered that if they're divorced once and remarried and then read this, you know, like there are people who have been divorced, been remarried, become a Christian, read this and felt convicted and thought, oh no, I'm living in adultery. Perhaps I need to divorce my new spouse and go back to my first one. To that I say two wrongs don't make a right. If you're married, keep your vow. Whoever you're currently married to, keep the vow. Be faithful to the person you're currently married to. So in terms of divorce, don't be the aggressor. Don't use it against your husband or wife for your own selfish ends. But divorce isn't always the result of one bad egg. It's usually more complicated than that. Even when one has committed adultery, there are times, and I don't say this to excuse acts of adultery, but there are times when the temptation was partly borne by neglect and mistreatment within the marriage. And so there might be one party who has relentlessly been cruel and held out on the other person, and then the other person commits adultery, and that person goes, oh, sweet, it's not my fault. Well, that's hardly right, you know, technically... And actually, adultery is wrong, always wrong. But that person doesn't get off scot-free in God's eyes, in the, in the law of heaven. While divorce can be almost exclusively the fault of one person, it usually isn't. But what about success? Let's stop talking about divorce for a minute. Let's talk about success. You might think that a successful marriage can only work if there's perfect mutual cooperation and roughly equal commitment. Well, that would be sweet. That's the ideal scenario. But it's wrong. That is not the only possible scenario. Sometimes failure in marriage takes just one. And sometimes success in marriage takes just one. If your marriage is rough, be the one who makes it work. Be more stubborn than the other. Not in decision-making, don't be just a stubborn person, but in faithfulness. Struggle on joyfully. Treat your husband with respect, even if you don't find him very admirable. Because I'll tell you what will normally make a man more admirable? Respect. Do you know what makes decent men less respectable? Constant criticism and disdain. Criticism hurts resolve. Compliment your husband and give him your unconditional affection. And do you know what makes a wife more lovely? Love. Do you know what makes a woman less sexy? It's not cellulite or pregnancy or diet. It's criticism. Cutting her down. When you promise to love one another until the day one of you dies, the promises aren't designed to be conditional. Weddings, as a minister, are my very favourite thing to do. Let me give you a sample of how a wedding I officiate won't look. I still forget the sides, but we'll go over here. Groom, will you have bride to be your wife, to live together in marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honour and support her in sickness and in health as long as you both live? 
I will, to the extent that she does the same for me. Thank you. Bride, will you have groom to be your husband, to live together in marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honour and support him in sickness and in health as long as you both live? Well, if he does all that for me first, I will. But where I suspect he's slipping, I'll withhold too, because I think things should be fair like that. No. Man, if you are married, love that woman. Comfort her, honour her, support her as long as you both live and no matter the woman she becomes, love her. And woman, if you're married, love that man. Comfort him, honour him, support him as long as you both live, no matter his failures. Do this and you may still never earn what you might call a happy marriage, but you have lived a truly, deeply honourable life. In your home, you might feel like a wretch, but in God's kingdom, you've become very great. Be faithful. Oaths. Obviously, oaths applies to marriage. For all time, people seal the deal with a suite of public promises they make to each other. But Jesus is talking about a whole life that's characterised by truth and faithfulness and reliability. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And then he goes on to say, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Well, in the New Testament, there's a couple of examples where New Testament believers do indeed make oaths and keep them. Uh, It's considered a normal and good thing, or at least it's presented that way. So here's what's going on. Many of you, um, uh, by way of illustration, many of you know I used to work uh, here in Emerald as an optometrist. Uh, When I was still a student in my final year of study, I I met with uh, the men who had become my future bosses. They were in partnership. Uh, I met with them for what I believed was an interview, but it was actually breakfast and a chat. It was really pleasant. Uh, We chatted for a couple of hours. Uh, We discussed arrangements for me to start work. uh, And uh, and then they started wrapping things up and saying goodbye. And I was very naive and young. And I said, well, should I be signing something? (laughs) I don't know. I was, you know... um, And they looked at each other a bit confused and then they looked back at me and said, oh, do you want to sign something? Uh, We can arrange something if you want. And then one of them explained himself. He said, the thing about contracts is you can always get out of them. And usually once you've got one, that's all you're thinking about is how to get out of it. So I took them at their word and all went well. Now, there's a bit of trust in that story, probably a bit of naivety, um, but it's not totally devoid of wisdom either. Uh, So this isn't advice for how to proceed in your own arrangements, but there was wisdom there because agreements that are more uh, agreements that are more binding and florid, well, under pressure, they're rarely worth the paper they're written on. They only need one person to start backing out a little bit. It doesn't matter how firm it looks in paper on paper. Agreements and oaths, etc., only actually keep honest people in check. So Jesus is saying, at your heart, be honest. And that's what all the rest of verses 34 to 36 are about. The Pharisees and scribes, they had detailed a series of intricate get-out clauses into the vows they made. Their vows were more focused on how you could get out of them than how you could keep them. And so the examples listed here make up that specific list. So if you swore by God, well, your oath is binding. But if you swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or your own head... Well, they're still binding, but technically they're not as binding as if you swear by God himself. 
And what Jesus says is that all of these things you swear by, instead of swearing, swearing by God so that you can get out of your own oaths, well, these things are still God's. Verse 34, heaven is God's throne. Verse 35, earth is God's footstool. Jerusalem is his city. Even your own head doesn't belong to you because your own hair colour and pattern baldness is ordained by God, not by you. So Jesus says these very cool, refreshing words at the end, let what you say simply be yes or no, and anything more than this comes from evil. One of the temptations when you plot a surprise for someone uh, is to make your lies too elaborate, which makes them suspicious. The more deceit is in your heart, the harder you're likely to try to persuade someone. But the more straightforward your motives are, the more straightforward your words are likely to be as well. So let's be people who are faithful in everything, in the small daily stuff and in the big stuff like lifelong commitments to marriage. Do what you say you will do. If you made a bunch of public promises towards your husband or wife, keep them doggedly until one of you dies. Romantic. The Bible uses many word pictures in closing, many word pictures and metaphors to describe God's relationship with us. Uh, He talks about uh, God as a king and us as his citizens or servants. Uh, The Bible talks about God as our father and us as his children. But one of the ones that does span both Old and New Testament is husband and wife. God is the faithful husband to his adulterous people. His people, Israel in the Old Testament, the church today, we are his bride. And we are the adulterers. In our hearts and actions, we have not been faithful to God. But he is our faithful and dutiful husband. He hasn't forgotten his vows or the promise he made or even uh, the covenant that he made, he kept, punished, and the breaking of that covenant resulted in the death of his own son, which he took on himself. He has suffered long and hard to win us over, and Jesus died to preserve this marriage. So let's have God's faithfulness comfort us in our sin, and let's have God's faithfulness drive us forward to be faithful like him. Let's pray, and we'll sing about God's faithfulness. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Father, help us uh, husbands and wives to be faithful. Father, prepare those of us who are single uh, to be faithful in heart uh, so that we are prepared for marriage or uh, whatever uh, life you have mapped out for us. Father, forgive us for our sins. Help us to be uh, courageously honest uh, and, uh, and to live with scrupulous integrity. We pray for the marriages uh, represented in this room today. Uh, we pray for their survival. We pray for their health and for great love and that you'll be glorified in us. Amen.